Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to World Footprints, the leading voice in socially responsible travel and lifestyle. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. On the occasion of the International Press Freedom Day, World Footprints attended a powerful event as a guest of the United Nations Foundation. That event sought to change the narrative and examine women's voices in fragile states and why those voices matter. A distinguished panel discussion was led by Ambassador Milan Verveer of the Georgetown Institute for Women, Peace, and Security. She was joined by Krista Hendry of the Fund for Peace, Amy Slaughter and Yar Ayel with Refuge Point, and award-winning filmmaker Alicia Stokes. The panel discussed the challenges that women are facing in fragile states and some areas where women are taking the lead in reconciliation. They also examined what happens to girls and women as the most vulnerable and often most neglected victims in conflict-afflicted states and why telling these stories is so important. There are several unique challenges today that make this situation uh, perhaps even more urgent than it has been, and that is um, kind of the confluence of several trends in the displacement world. One being that uh, displacement is at record levels. 2013 was one of the worst years on record for new displacement in terms of new refugees created and new IDPs created, um, bringing the global total to 45 million um, displaced, of which 15 million are refugees. We hope you enjoy this panel discussion and also hear some of these powerful stories, but also share them as well in an effort to change the narrative. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick, and this is World Footprints. Visit and connect with us at worldfootprints.com. Ambassador Milan Revere is director of the Georgetown Institute on Women, Peace, and Security. Most recently, she served as the first U.S. ambassador for global women's issues, a position to which she was nominated by President Obama in 2009. She served as the U.S. representative to the U.N. Commission on the Status of Women, and she's been a leader in giving voice to the particular issues women and girls face around the world. In commencing the panel discussion, Ambassador Verveer talked about the correlation between the denial of women's rights and the instability of a country. Denying women's rights is, is very much linked to the instability of countries. Uh, women in many ways are like the canaries in the mines, and this is one of the uh, underpinnings of Security Council Resolution 1325. If you look at the condition of girls and women in a society, uh, and that condition is worsening, that is a sign of potentially even worse that is to come. So this role that women play as the early warning signals uh, I think is something that we don't pay enough attention to until it is much too late. And I also think that seeing women, not just as victims, they are surely victimized, uh, and you will hear a lot about the conditions in which they find themselves, but that is not the beginning and end of the story. We need to begin to see women as they are through the lens of their agency. They are on the front lines of change all around the world, as Kathy stated, uh, and understanding their role as agents of change is vitally important to the kinds of 
efforts that they need to play and need to be empowered to play and resourced to play uh, because it will make all of the difference. Through her work at the Fund for Peace, Krista Hendry, executive director of the fund, has helped the fund become a leader in the field of conflict assessment and early warning, focusing on the problems of weak and failing states. For over 50 years and in over 50 countries, the Fund for Peace has worked with governments, NGOs, international organizations, and private businesses to promote sustainable security, prevent violent conflict, and to help local civil society and senior policymakers to address threats to peace and stability. For the past nine years, the fund has produced the Failed States Index, an annual ranking of 178 countries across 12 indicators that is published by Foreign Policy Magazine. Ambassador Bavir began the panel discussion by asking Hendry, what is a fragile state? A fragile state is a state that really cannot or will not protect its citizens. Um, And that's why the topic of women is so important, because women and girls are the most, most vulnerable in a society. And in a fragile state, the government isn't there to protect them, and in some cases actually will endanger them. So you put out a fragile states index. Mm -hmm. What does that index uh, include, and how do women factor into that index? Actually, we're going to be launching um, Fragile States Index 2014 next month here in Washington, D.C. We have a lot of changes in the index. You'll see the country is quite moving, some dramatically. Um, But we look at a range of issues under social, economic, political, and women really factor into a lot of those. How are women um, dealing with the the demographic pressures? how are they being able to take care of their children? What public services are available? Health is, is of course, so important to women. Um, and then, really, another one that's quite important is refugees and IDPs. Um, we really we have an indicator just for this, and it's because we look not only at the number of refugees and IDPs in a country, but also how they're being treated. And how women are treated in those camps really tells you quite a lot about the society that they're in. It also puts a lot of pressure on other societies because they have to absorb a lot of refugees, and that takes away public services from their own citizens. You know, uh, one of the things uh, we also know is the positive role that women play, even in the most adverse conditions. Uh, One of the reasons the institute that I'm associated with now was founded uh, in the last year is to really put together that data and research on how uh, women are agents of change in uh, conflict societies. Um, how 1325, if you will, uh, is being implemented. And I wonder, when you look at the work of your index, when you assess what's going on on the ground, do you measure in any way the positive activities that women are engaged in and the roles that they play? Actually, when I work on the ground on issues of community development, you mentioned the work with the private sector. Um, One of the things we really try to stress is really getting the voice of the women when we're talking about how the community either should reconstruct after conflict or even just build in rural areas. Um, What we've found is that men often want things 
they want the buildings, the bridges, the roads. They see things more in the short term. This isn't always true. But women want services. They think about the health and the education. Now, we need both of these things. You need the buildings to have the doctors. And so you need both the women's perspectives and the men's perspectives. Too often, though, and particularly in post-conflict areas, we're not getting the women's voices. Um, and, and this can be very disastrous. Um, I think some people probably know the water well anecdote, some people in this room, which is, you know, a group of men were asked what was needed in a village in reconstruction. And the answer was, oh, our women have to walk so far to get water, so we'd really like to have the water well right in the center of town. It sounded great. It sounded like they must have talked to women. This is for women to prevent them from having to walk so far. Well, the water well went in. The women were extremely upset. Turns out this, this area, I don't even know where this village was, the anecdote is so old, but this area was, had a huge amounts of domestic violence. And that walk to get the water every day was when women were seeking solace and sharing ideas about how to prevent domestic violence. And now the men knew they didn't have to take that time and they expected their women to be home. And they were afraid that there would be even greater domestic violence. You know, it's one of the reasons that uh, the United Nations and its wisdom and so many people working on these issues around the world uh, have found that it's critically important to put a focus on the need for women's participation because women bring a different perspective and set of experiences to the table. But if they're not at the table, those issues are not going to be addressed. Uh, I remember when the peace process uh, that ultimately failed, the agreement was abrogated over not that many years later with Angola, um, an issue like landmines uh, was on the table. And the determination was, well, the first place we need to remove those mines were in the areas uh, that the men thought were important. And not in the fields where the agriculture work was going on, not near the water source. And so you had tremendous uh, consequences uh, that were never considered because these voices uh, were not at the table. So I think women, women as problem solvers, as part of the solution, um, are something that needs to be factored in. And I guess the last thing for this round I'd like to ask you is how do you uh, at, at the fund uh, focus on women as problem solvers in these spaces? Um, I just want to say one quick little anecdote on landmines. I was recently told a story that um, a security analyst had come into a country and he noticed that the men walked in front and women walked three feet behind. And, you know, he thought, well, this is, this is really a shame. He really believed greatly in the importance of women being involved and he didn't like to see this, this difference. And he was there for many months and then he came back later and he saw that the women were now walking in front and the men were three feet behind. And he thought, like, I guess this is progress. And the man next to him said, no, landmines. See who gets hit first. Um, but, so we really look, when, when another interesting thing on the index is when I look at the countries at the top of the index, which is the, the more fragile, the more conflicted, those are areas where we often see women not really involved in societies. And as you go down the index and you think about women in government, women in business, women running nonprofit organizations, you see that more and more as you come down to the, to the index. And so I think really highlighting that more in our work is something that we will be doing, um, that when women have a role, we can actually really start to, to 
stabilize societies. Good. We'll be watching to see how they get increasingly incorporated. Amy Slaughter is the Chief Operating Officer for Refuge Point, an NGO headquartered in Boston with field programs throughout Africa. Amy has 20 years of experience in the refugee assistance field and a master's degree in human rights from Columbia University. Refuge Point works closely with the UN High Commission for Refugees on refugee protection and durable solutions. Amy addressed the challenges that women and child refugees face today and how her organization is helping. Amy, you have spent an awful lot of time looking at the uh, situation of refugees, uh, which is a tremendous challenge in our world. And one, Kathy started talking about Syria. We've got people in the audience from Jordan, um, refugees pouring into Jordan, into Turkey, into Lebanon from Syria. Um, how? What can you tell us about the, the state of refugees today, and particularly uh, girls and women, or women and children, really, because that, that is the majority of, of the refugees. Um, and what, what can we glean from that in terms of what we need to do? Sure. Well, there are several unique challenges today that make this situation uh, perhaps even more urgent than it has been, and that is um, kind of the confluence of several trends in the displacement world, one being that uh, displacement is at record levels. 2013 was one of the worst years on record for new displacement in terms of new refugees created and new IDPs created, um, bringing the global total to 45 million um, displaced, of which 15 million are refugees. Uh, and a lot are from Syria, but from the African continent where we work, obviously from Somalia, Congo, Sudan. So there's that trend of increased displacement, and then there's also, as you alluded to, an increasing feminization of that displacement. So it's estimated that about 80% of all refugees are women and children. Unfortunately, it's very difficult to get a disaggregated figure to break down women from the children, which is part of the problem. Um, but, but we do know that women make up a, um, a good portion of the flow, partly because they are deliberately targets of war. Um, a third trend is that um, increasingly refugees are moving to urban areas and bypassing the camps where the humanitarian infrastructure has been set up. So it's estimated that about 50% of refugees today actually live in urban areas where they're largely unassisted and off the humanitarian radar. Um, and then, um, forgot my fourth trend. <laughs> refugees are staying refugees longer because of protracted conflict. So the average duration of uh, that a person remains a refugee now is 17 years, and many never return home. Uh, for instance, in the Dadaab camp in Kenya, where we work, um, there are over 10,000 third-generation refugees born there, so whose grandparents originally fled from Somalia. So these are just four trends in the displacement world that create kind of a, a confluence of challenges for the international community and all the more so for girls and women who are obviously among the most vulnerable among these populations. Um, and one point that I'd like to make is you might imagine that after a refugee flees the, the country of conflict that they reach safety in another country. But often, uh, you know, safety is a, a relative and an elusive notion and actually each point along their journey um, brings new risks and, and new gender specific risks for girls and, and women and even after arrival in their country of asylum, these risks continue. So things like um, sexual and gender-based violence, trafficking, domestic servitude, sexual slavery, 
Um, and these sound like kind of theoretical worst case scenarios, but they're actually very common scenarios that we see very often in our uh, urban program in Nairobi with refugees. So uh, one of the things we also know is that women comprise the majority of the internally displaced. So some situations you've got the refugees where you're going across the border and fleeing your country, the conflict that's taking place. And in other situations, there are masses of internally displaced. Who has the jurisdictions uh, in terms of the international bodies uh, for the care uh, and 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 potential futures of, of these people? It's not my area of expertise, but I know there's a cluster group at the global, global level and that UNHCR does take responsibility for IDPs for some of the services, for shelter in particular for IDPs. I think um, there is a division of labor among the international organizations and I actually don't know precisely beyond that. You know, you mentioned uh, how long generations of families, um, in fact, can uh, spend their whole lives in the camps and, and the next generation. Um, and so issues, policy issues that many of us deal with, like girls' education, for example, one of the toughest challenges is the need to provide that education in the camps, uh, in the refugee areas. Can you tell us a little bit more about some of those challenges and ways that they're being addressed today? Sure. I also think that Yar's presentation will touch on that as well because she experienced that personally, the challenge of being a girl in a camp and accessing education. But in general, uh, primary education is provided in camps. That's usually guaranteed through a combination of the government and UNHCR and um, international donors. Secondary education is almost completely absent. And even the primary education that exists is not very girl-friendly. Um, there are a lot of reasons why girls, um, because of their domestic responsibilities, are not able to attend school and the school that is offered is you know very high ratio of students to teachers poorly trained teachers no materials lots of challenges lots of challenges now what about um, the framework of international laws are they adequate today to cover refugees given what you said about the major trend lines or do we need to be doing better adequate in particular for women and girls? Um, I would say yes and no, uh, and it depends on who's interpreting refugee law. Um, the, and this is an area of a lot of debate, and there has been some progress on this in recent years. But the, the types of harm that women experience is, uh, can be different than the types of harm that men experience. And it's not uh, as easy to link those types of harm to the, the five grounds that are sanctioned by the Refugee Convention. So for instance, the, the kinds of abuses that women are experiencing in Congo with epidemic rape where the motives um, can be difficult to sort out, whether it's politically motivated, ethnically motivated, or just private. Um, those types of claims can be very difficult to link to a refugee convention claim. Um, but I, I do think that there has been progress in expanding our understanding of uh, refugee law to extend to more to women's types of harm. After the break from the UN Foundations panel, Women's Voices in Fragile Places, we'll hear from Yara being there in the refugee camp with no parents to protect me, I 
face so many challenges like many other girls. And Alicia Stokes. When women are reported on, it's usually in the case of Congo, which is where I primarily work, as victims of sexual violence. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, I'm Asia from Connecticut via India. And I would encourage you to listen to World Footprints. It's great radio, so do tune in. Thank you. Suffrage Centennials is having its first birthday in 2014. Find out about events and celebrations. Suffragecentennials.com Tap New York State on the shoulder about putting the spirit of 1776 suffrage campaign wagon on permanent exhibit. Celebrate women's freedom to vote and rock the cradle of the U.S. women's rights movement. Suffragewagon.org More than 100 million wild animals are killed each year, illegally. Poaching is just one of the risks animals face at our hands. I'm Tom Barry. I'm an actor. I grew up in the beautiful rural countryside of Ohio, where animals roam freely in the open forests. I have a deep concern to help preserve those open spaces for our wildlife friends so they can live and thrive like they used to. Destruction of their habitats threaten their very existence. The best way to protect wildlife is to protect the land where they live. The Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust works with private landowners to protect wildlife, to preserve natural habitats, and establish permanent sanctuaries. To learn more or to work with the Humane Society Wildlife Land Trust, call 800-729-SAVE. That's 800-729-SAVE. Or visit wildlifelandtrust.org. Thank you. Police in the UK free 19 women who were forced to work as prostitutes. Nigerian officials save more than 100 children from traffickers. And in China, officers rescue 53 baby boys who are due to be sold by a trafficking ring. Human trafficking affects every country in the world. But by joining forces, we can fight this crime. Support the United Nations Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking. UNGIFT.org You are listening to UNGIFT, Global Initiative to Fight Human Trafficking. Do you think that the correlation between human trafficking and human rights has been well uh, presented in the media and in the general public? Well, the thing is, the problem is it's being portrayed as a human rights violation, which of course it is. Mm -hmm. The problem is in the measures and policies, human rights are not at the center. So human rights has become a little bit of a slogan instead of implemented policies. And this is what we are lobbying for, is to make sure that human rights are at the core of any anti-trafficking policy or measure. How does formalized cooperation benefit or challenges uh, La Sada International's activities? Well, it benefits our activities is that we're seen as a serious partner and we can actually put our demands and needs in this cooperation forum as it is a cooperation between two equal partners, as was discussed today. So this is, this is of benefit. The risk is that... Um, if the offices don't have enough funding, they might become dependent on the funding by the ministries, and that's what we don't want, because then we would be only allowed to uh, provide services for traffic persons who want to cooperate with the authorities. And as a human rights organization, we want to give services to anybody who's in need of those services. Um, so it, it might influence our independence. 
Uh, on the other hand, it can also strengthen our position. So it's up to us to guard our own independence and to strengthen our position. So this is why evaluation of uh, memorandum of understanding is of importance, so that both parties after some time can say what's working and what's not. And for NGOs, this is very important. You mentioned earlier that there are some measures that are more um, to combat trafficking and not enough on preventing it. Well, of course, these measures are, are more complex and have to do with more things. But, for example, development aid uh, is a good tool to prevent people to want to leave their countries and, or to stabilize their situation in their countries, but also to stop restrictive migration policies. There is a need for labor migration, whether we like it or not. And restrictive immigration policies won't, will not stop people from migrating. It will only push them into the hands of traffickers and smugglers and make their position very vulnerable. So looking at preventing trafficking is also looking at our world economy and what our world needs and about inequality and how to solve it. And it's more difficult, but it's more sustainable if we look at it that way. Thank you for listening to this UN Gift podcast. To find out more about our work, visit us online at www.ungift.org. Human trafficking is the fastest growing criminal industry in the world. One of the greatest myths is that human trafficking is only a third world problem. But neither education, wealth, age, race, nor social standing protects one from becoming a victim of human trafficking. Awareness and action are key to fighting this crime against humanity. To report human trafficking or to learn more, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline at 1-888-3737-888. Collectively, we can put an end to human trafficking one step at a time. Hi, my name is Jeannie. I am from Fiji. I love listening to World Food Trace Radio. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. Yar Ayul is a former refugee from South Sudan. She came to the U.S. as one of a few girls among the 3,500 lost boys resettlement in the late 90s and settled in Massachusetts. She is now working at Refuge Point in Boston, pursuing an MBA and raising two children with her husband. Yar, um, before you you tell us why we should be spending uh, so much attention and having greater understanding about the plight of girls, tell us your story. Tell us about the journey that you had to make uh, when you were leaving South Sudan or Sudan. Um, with your family and what happened to them and how you got where you are? Um, I left South Sudan when I was about seven years old and go to Ethiopia with my father. And then on my way back to South Sudan, um, my father died and my brother and I were alone. Um, I was probably nine and he was four or five at that time. And then uh, we moved to Kenya with the rest of the Lost Boys, where we stayed there and then came to the United States. How long were you in Kenya? About eight years. And being there at the refugees camp with no parents to protect me, I faced so many challenges like many other girls, um, the lack of protection and um, the attack on refugees, women, and also the um, the lack of access to education. Girls 
um, live with relatives or some foster home where they will perform domestic chores. So education is not a priority for girls. So you, for me, I, when I get a chance, I will go to night prep. And that was very dangerous because of the things that I mentioned, the attack on women and also uh, not be able to do the things that I wanted to do because of fear of being a girl. And, and we know that there were the lost boys of Sudan as well. How would you say from your experience they were treated? Um, how did their experience differ from that that the girls encountered, if at all? The guys lived together. Um, they fend for each other. For the girls, they were lived uh, with families, and also they didn't have the network support that the guys had. So the girls were much vulnerable than guys because they got each other back. So you heard Amy talk about policies, and you have the experience. You know firsthand what it was like. Out of that experience, if you were um, telling all of us today, as you are, um, what we should be doing vis-a-vis uh, -vis the issue of girls as refugees, what major um, issues come out of your experience that is something we should bear in mind today as we're working on these, these uh, working in these areas? That I never priority. Girls never priority when it comes to education. But I think if the women and girls are allowed to have the same access to education as boys, they will do just amazing things as the guys will. And did you see that the boys were getting a better education? Was that comparable? or uh, they, When they can study when they can, um, they didn't have domestic chores. They have their own things to take care of, but they can go freely to the night prep without fear. But for me, I was afraid of being attacked or something worse could happen to me. So the guys have got it, not get it easy, but they are there as a group to protect each other. And did you witness a lot of violence in the camps? Did you, did the girls tell you, the other girls, how scared they were or how you felt? We were scared, especially when we go to the distribution center at night to collect our ration. So we just kind of walk together hoping that nothing bad is going to happen to us. But for guys, they just walking together and just say, I hope nothing bad is going to happen to me. So we always walk on fear. The refugees women are always afraid of being attacked or worse. So, Amy, you were telling us about some of the, the serious policy challenges that exist. Um, we heard Yara's personal story. What, what comes out of that that should be informing our work, and how do you use a narrative like this uh, to, to promote um, the work in the whole refugee sphere? Yeah. 
I've always thought that refugees are the best war correspondents, and since this is a media event, I think it's worth thinking about how their voices can influence policy and affect change and create a multiplier effect to help find solutions for other refugee women. So I would just encourage the media to incorporate refugee women voices whenever they can. Alicia Stokes is an award-winning freelance journalist and documentary filmmaker. Her work appears in the New York Times, the BBC, and Global Post. She is a 2014 International Women's Media Foundation Reporting Fellow and has recently returned from a reporting trip to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. What is the storyline in the media on girls and women in fragile states? I think that the storyline is really influenced by who gets to tell the story. And when you look at war correspondents, they're primarily white men with great educations. And so they are viewing those situations with a certain lens. That's going to determine who gets to tell the story and how that story is told. Women tend to speak to one another with more intimacy and authenticity than they might speak to a man who doesn't speak their language, doesn't really know about their country. And so what we see in the media is this, first of all, women are underrepresented in the media full stop. I mean, women don't work in the media, and when, they, when women are reported on, it's usually in the case of Congo, which is where I primarily work, as victims of sexual violence. And certainly there is tremendous issue with sexual violence in the Congo. But there's also a huge emerging middle class of very strong, powerful women uh, who are working on issues like Resolution 1325. I work with a group of women in South Kivu, the Association de Femmes de Media de South Kivu, and they go into these terrible situations, put women's voices on the radio, and educate them on 13. Yeah, Shushu. She's like my best friend, lover. Um, but we can't sell that story. You know, we're making a documentary, and we can't sell that story. I just did a huge, huge report on the Minova case, where somewhere between 133 and 1,000 women were raped by the Congolese military just south of Goma about a year and a half ago. And it's a very important story, and it's an important story in terms of women's justice and global women's justice and what we see happening at the ICC. But at the same time, it's a story that's the... That is the dominant narrative from the DRC. And when it's told, it's not told from the women who experience that violence. It's told from the organization's perspective that are potentially, they have their own agenda. Mm-hmm. And so how, how do we honor these stories in a way that is authentic, that is respectful? We've got to go to the source. We've got to get the women on the radio, in the media, speaking for themselves, telling their own stories. And I know from the group, uh, because I have had experience with them over the years, that there's very little funding. Uh, They've got critical needs. They've got, uh, they not only want to get the story out, they want to have the story among themselves in terms of how they can better protect themselves, how they can look at their futures. Uh, And to buy an hour of radio time in this very remote area is extremely costly, right? Extremely costly. And, you know, I'm working right now with FM in Chushu in a town called Kachenga, which is just north of Goma, where there was a radio. The rebels came, burned the town down, and took the radio. So mm-hmm. the women there, who are very powerful women, these are powerful, strong, okay, they're not economically empowered, but they're doing things for themselves. Uh, they want their voices on the radio. They're ready to organize. They're ready to do what it takes. 
but we, there's no money. There's absolutely no money, which is why an organization like the International Women's Media Foundation, I have to give them a shout out, has been so critical because um, they fund these projects and they fund these projects with no strings attached, which is really, it's a rarity in the field. And they're, you know, you have to, you have to do that in order to get these voices in the media because they're not easy to sell. And one of the great um, intermediaries is the role of journal journalists from the outside looking inside. Uh, you mentioned there's a dearth of women in the field, uh, but where there are women uh, as correspondents in conflict zones, for example, in these fragile, very fragile areas, do they cover the, the uh, situation differently? Do they tell some of these stories more than their male counterparts? I think they tell the stories differently, and I mean, I don't, I don't want to. I can speak about my work. I don't want to cast stones, but you know, there's um, in the situation of sexual gender-based violence in the Congo, there are a lot of visual images. I should mention that I'm primarily a video journalist, so I work in visual medium uh, and documentary. And when we look at the language, the visual language of these photos, there are women with bags on their heads. To me, those photos are evocative of Abu Ghraib. They're disrespectful. They lump women together. They don't honor those stories and that personal narrative of how tragic that was. And so when I work with women, I try to, why I love video is it's women speaking in their own voices, telling their own story. It's not me paraphrasing. It's not me quoting. Obviously, there are editorial choices that are made, but when you watch something like that, you are hearing from the source what it's like to live that reality. And I think that's incredibly evocative and powerful and emotional, and that's how we change policy, in, in my opinion. Uh, we're going to turn to all of you to join this conversation uh, in a minute, so think about what you might want to ask the panel. Uh, but before we do, Alicia, um, I have found that the women um, know their situation, know how horrible what they're going through is. Uh, they do want that message to get out, but they don't want to be viewed as victims. They want to be seen as the agents of change that they are. And I've often told this story, but it never has left me, uh, and that is being in a group like this, uh, just a conversation in Kabul, Afghanistan, when the first thing one of the women said to me is stop looking at us as victims and look at us as the leaders that we are. Because the story is always about the victimhood to the extent that it's covered. And it's not about the problem solvers, the agents for change. Do you see that in your own work? Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I'm always trying to do better personally because it's not easy and certainly I make mistakes because I'm not an expert in what it is to be a refugee. I've never been a refugee. I have a very privileged background. But I think that the importance is to work with people as people. In, in news media, you know, there's, oh, there's this long tradition of objectivity. And I am the storyteller and you are the person with the story. And I think that that's important. Facts matter. But it's also important to be collaborative with your subject matter because the factual reality is the story that they're telling you. That has authenticity and value also. And so bringing somebody along in that process, for example, you know, when I'm taking an image of somebody, when I'm videoing them, I will often stop the camera. I love this because technology has improved. <laughs> Show them what it looks like and say, how do you feel about this? Are you comfortable with this? Can we continue? 
Because if, it's, if they're not comfortable, if they don't feel that it's an accurate representation, then it's not a factually accurate representation. And we need to work together to get to the truth, in my opinion. I'm going to put in a shameless plug, but one of the things we're trying to do uh, at the Georgetown Institute is create an oral history. So we've got some of the major players from Ellen Johnson, Sir Elise, and Mary Robinson, but also most of the voices of the kinds of women you're describing. So if you want at any point for us to have your stories as well, you are welcome to have us put those into the oral history for others around the world to be able to access. Yeah, and these women's stories too. Like it's not, my story is boring. Their story is way it's more their interesting. Story. And they are better at telling it and they're ready to tell it. After the break, more from the UN Foundation's Women's Voices in Fragile Places. Without the experiences that women have, without their knowledge, their ground truth uh, experiences that so need to be on the table, what we find historically is that many of those agreements, most of which happen without women's participation, end up being abrogated. Next, as World Footprints continues. Hi, my name is Emeline. I'm from Korea. I love the Footprints Radio. In times like these, it's important to know the facts about sexual assault. Rape and sexual assault are acts of violence that can happen to anyone. Most victims know their attacker. It can be a boyfriend, husband, co-worker, or even a family member. But there are ways to protect yourself. Using common sense can help keep you safe. Stay away from people that use anger as a means of control. Travel in well-lighted, busy areas and avoid known trouble spots. If you find yourself in a potentially dangerous situation, report any assault to the police immediately. Seek medical attention. The sooner you tell someone, the sooner you can get help and the better chance of the attacker being apprehended. Awareness, education, and communication are the keys to prevention. Learn how to protect yourself from acts of sexual assault or what to do if you become a victim. Visit ncpc.org for more straight talk about sexual assault. That's ncpc.org. A message from the U.S. Department of Justice, National Crime Prevention Council, and the Ad Council. Visit the Galapagos Islands, meet polar bears in Canada, sip wine in northern Italy, explore the Hawaiian Islands aboard a luxury yacht, and stand face-to-face with China's terracotta soldiers. Explore the world on a journey of a lifetime with World Footprints Discovery Tours. These tours give a unique view of the world in an intimate, small group setting with the freedom to immerse yourself in local culture, learn, and make new friends along the way. Book early and save. Visit worldfootprints.com and look for Discovery Tours to begin your next adventure today. My father had prostate cancer. My grandfather, two great uncles, died from it. I wish I'd known about the family history, but it just wasn't talked about. My name's Lonnie. I had my prostate removed in May of 1995, and I'm still here. So there is life after prostate cancer. I'm living proof. One thing I would want to share with any man that thinks that he may have prostate cancer is, number one, get it checked. Secondly, you have time after the diagnosis. Read, learn, go talk with your doctor, and make some decisions. Because knowledge is power. It cannot be understated. Prostate cancer is the most common cancer among men in Michigan. If you've been diagnosed, talk with your health care provider about your options and visit prostatecancerdecision.org today. 
sponsored by the Michigan Department of Community Health, the Michigan Cancer Consortium, and the Michigan Association of Broadcasters. World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Hi, my name is Eva. I'm from Fiji and I love listening to World Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back to World Footprints. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. Here's more from the UN Foundation's Women's Voices in Fragile Places. Hi, uh, my name is Connie Shalom. I'm actually Milan Master Revere's Deputy at the Georgetown Institute for Women's Peace and Security. And in fact, I created the Profiling Peace Oral Histories Project that she just mentioned. And my question is to Alicia exactly about that. Um, how do you deal with the ethical challenges oh, that yeah. come with this? Um, because obviously telling the story is important, but it can pose a risk for the subject, yes. especially in video form. Yes. Um, and how do you navigate that? What do you say? And how do you how do you deal with it on your own? Because our team is sitting here, and this is something we deal with every day, and we are not professional filmmakers or journalists. Yeah, thank you for that question. Uh, I haven't slept in like three weeks because of this piece on... Uh, the Minova trials, in which I would encourage you all to check it out because it's um, launching a year of reporting at Global Post on women's justice, and we need more stories about women's justice. But mm. it, check out the video. Some people are not going to like it. That's cool. She is somewhat identifiable. So we worked with one woman uh, who is uh, who experienced rape and wanted to tell her story. And of course, there are a number of NGOs that are involved in this that are assisting these women with the trial. And so it was like, how do we do this in a way that's respectful, that honors her story, and that doesn't put her life at risk? Uh, She made decisions. I obviously also made editorial decisions. We worked with partners. We worked with a local NGO, like a Congolese NGO that was assisting the women. They have a rape crisis center there. We worked with the American Bar Association, which obviously has so much experience. And we uh, constantly, every step along the way, asked ourselves, okay, what are the, what's the impact of this? How do we balance the impact of the importance of this story and the importance of people emotionally connecting with this story and protecting this person's life? Um, and ultimately make judgment calls. But I think all you can do is check your intention, um, make sure this is not about you, it's about the greater narrative, and you know, my number one strategy is I surround myself with people who are smarter than me. And women are experts in their own lives. Women, those are the experts, right? It's not me, a journalist, who's an expert. My job is to listen and to be a conduit uh, and, and to respect their boundaries and what they want. And so often um, we make rules in the media and the NGO world and the policy world around how these women can behave and how they can tell their story. They know better than we do. And if we listen, uh, and work together, then 
hopefully we find a middle ethical ground. But it is difficult. And you will make mistakes, and I will make mistakes. That's just the reality. Others? Over there, there's a gentleman here. Hi, thank you. My name is Frank Smythe. I'm with Global Journalist Security. And Alicia, I want to follow up on a similar question. You and I recently heard Gina Moore, the international women's correspondent for BuzzFeed, talk about her criticism of the way a lot of news media will cover acts of sexual violence. And it was a criticism that I never heard before, but still resonates with me. Could you explain what she's talking about, about the need to respect the context and the women itself and the way the story is told? Yeah, Gina's like my best friend. She's amazing. If you haven't read what she's doing on BuzzFeed, it's incredible. But basically, um, the idea is that in, in, in situations of, of rape, and, and on, there are journalism codes that we are supposed to adhere to around identification, uh, anonymity, safety. Those are all really important, obviously. But there's also the reality of being a victim of sexual violence, which I'm sure many women in this room have also experienced, because rape happens here, too. Um, and, and how we want to tell our own stories and how we want to be honored for the reality of, of what we experience and how that can actually be a very empowering process if it's treated with respect and navigated in a respectful capacity. Um, and I mean, in the case of at least the DRC, like, we do not see that. We see numbers. Those numbers are often inaccurate. People, people want to have these big numbers to put a barometer on truth. Well, that's not truth. The truth is the experience that one individual had in one moment that is the factual truth for them. And so how do we shy away from lumping women together in one giant welcome to the rape capital of the world and instead honor an individual and their experience um, and their story if they want to share it? And that's the key there, if they want to share it and how they want to share it. Okay, let's go to the back right there. Hi, thank you for your presentation. I actually just wanted to ask you and HCR representative about. Can you be a little louder? Can you talk oh, right? Uh, yeah, sorry. Um, I just wanted to ask the UNHCR representative about women's leadership in context of, of conflict and fragile states, um, and if you're doing what you're doing to engage women in conflict resolution um, and areas of leadership and cultivating local leadership. You're asking me. Uh, the UNHCR representative. Uh, I'm with an NGO, actually. I'm not with UNHCR. Okay. I'm with Refuge Point. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm afraid since I'm not with UNHCR, I can't answer that. But it's a good question uh, in terms of how do we grow women's leadership? Is that the question? Yeah. In yeah. terms of being more effective in conflict resolution? Yeah, exactly. Making them a part of the process. Does anybody else want to tackle that? Nope. And obviously, that's one of the key elements in um, the Security Council. 1325, which is the important role that women have to play in these negotiations, in these processes to uh, ameliorate crises and then move forward uh, in the post-crisis uh, peace building that needs to take place uh, to create a, a better future for, for all of the, the people who've gone through it. Uh, and without the experiences that women have, without their knowledge, their ground truth, uh, experiences that so need to be on the table, what we find historically is that many of those agreements, most of which happen without women's participation, end up being abrogated, uh, at least half of them. 
so we have to do a better job, and there are others involved in this space, inclusive security, for example, that works at the training of women and helping them work through the differences that they can make. And then those of us who've been in government or in positions of influence at the UN, et cetera, to do that advocacy to ensure that as the decision makers with whom we work can be influential, that they're actually being voices for women's uh, participation. So I think it has to be outside, inside as well. Go ahead. Yeah, I'd like to just jump in there because one of the things my organization does is we train local civil societies. Um, we use the same kind of comprehensive look at a country as we use with the Fragile States Index, but at a very, very local level. And when we train those civil society organizations, we make sure that we've got a fair balance of men and women um, and also different age groups so that they can assess their situation themselves. The Fragile States Index is 40,000 foot level. This brings it down and lets the people there themselves, civil society organizations, but also individuals, assess their needs, assess the pressures on their state, assess what they want to do together, and then in collaboration, decide how to advocate to government for the things that they believe are needed to stabilize this Anybody else want to take that? No? Okay. Others? Uh, you've had your hand up for a long time. You. Yeah. Hi. I'm Hannah Alam from McClatchy Newspapers. Um, my question is for Yar. Thank you very much for sharing your experience. Um, Secretary Kerry's in Juba today, and I was wondering what would um, what would you like him to say or do? And is there something uh, in particular as it relates to women and girls in this conflict that you'd like to highlight? And is it time for sanctions uh, as a tool to pressure uh, for, toward a resolution? Thanks. I would like to tell him that um, put political pressure on, on South Sudanese leaders and also my worry about women. Women are the vulnerable population who get caught in everything that goes on in the country. So to provide some sort of protection for these women, most of them, I have relatives there. I have sisters who are really worried about their safety and their children's safety. So to just give a politi political pressure to South Sudanese leader and just to tell them to, to stop this. I'm John Thorne. My job with the Woodrow Wilson International uh, Center for Scholars. Uh, I want to make comment and also ask questions directly to the media. Uh, the story that you are shared with all of us here is my story because I've been uh, in the refugee camp for more than a decade. And it's I commend people like Yar and other women who have been through all this and to be able to tell the narrative from their perspective on what women needs are. Because we men uh, do not exactly know what women needs are, but they can be able to express themselves, their needs, especially in a vulnerable place like the refugee camp. Uh, and so I do believe women are resilient. Uh, and, and if given the opportunity, they, you know, they are equal to, to men in, 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 in different capacities. Uh, with that, I would like to ask that question about cultural challenge in reporting, especially in telling the women narrative. 
because you don't uh, how do you deal with this uh, the comment that will follow is this if you are interviewing women for example in the refugee camp where the culture contact is not is foreign to you you don't understand the contact then by interviewing them and telling that story those words could be used against them okay after you left as a an international reporter mm-hmm. so how do you strike that balance when you go to a foreign culture where women are treated differently because you don't want to use the, the word that they said against them that will make them victim forever yeah. and so how how do you strike that balance yeah. culture is 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 everything thank you yes yeah. Thank you. That's an excellent question. Culture is everything. And I am not a Congolese woman. Uh, and so that, that's a challenge. But I live with Congolese women. When I go to Congo, I stay there for three, four, five months. And I literally live in their homes and sleep in their beds. And they are my best friends. And, and they, as I said before, they are the experts. So if I have a question, I defer to them. And I say, okay, for, I'm lucky because I have an army of people who I can say, what do you think about this? Is this working? How do you think this narrative is going to affect this woman? And also, you know, you're dealing in a situation where um, there, there, it, there's a lot of variation in the terms of um, economic power, education, and personal agency that women have. So I have friends who have degrees. They have more education than I have. And uh, I work also in IDP camps with women who have been fleeing their whole lives and haven't had that opportunity to invest in their educations. And sometimes if somebody doesn't, some, it can be difficult when you work in the media to make sure that your subject understands the power of what, what the process that you are both engaging in. So how what they say could, as you mentioned, be used against them. And so what I do is I, I, I deflect those questions to women who know more about Congo because they are Congolese than I do, and I show them what I'm working on, and I say, what do you think about this? What are the risks here? Is this okay? Uh, what, what, would this be allowed to happen in Congo? Would you report the story this way? And um, they're honest with me because, you know, we're, we live together, so they give me the straight goods. And somehow we try and find a solution that is good for everybody. Is it perfect? No. Do I want Congolese women telling those stories? Absolutely. This is the film project that I'm trying to work on with young journalists working on Resolution 1325. For whatever reason, the international news media doesn't seem particularly receptive uh, to local people telling their own stories. And it's not good. Uh, we need to collectively work towards that. It's really important, absolutely, to have local journalists working in international press, not just local press. Um, and I hope we get there. And I think support for local journalists is, is critically important. We often, in the grant-making world, uh, negate the importance of media in these places that can be very constructive and helpful. I'm afraid I, I'm being told we have to close. I would only encourage those of you, quite a significant number, who still have their hands up, uh, that the panel will stay a little bit so you can ask them your questions. Uh, and uh, hopefully continue to mingle uh, with each other uh, to discuss this, this topic. But I hope leaving today you uh, feel more informed uh, and recognize that when it comes to fragile states, conflict zones, uh, women have a vital role to play. We need to listen to their voices uh, because they are in many ways the vital voices of our time. So thank each of our panelists. Uh, and thank all of you for coming.
Eleanor Roosevelt once said, women are like tea bags. You never know how strong they are until you put them in hot water. We thank you so much for joining us for today's World Footprints radio show and helping us to change the narrative. It is as important to hear the stories as it is to share them. Keep the conversations going at hashtag Women's Voices and support women as they are on the front lines of change. All of our shows are archived on our website, so if you've missed a show, or if you want to hear our World Footprints Travel Report, giving you the day's breaking travel and world news, visit us at worldfootprints.com. And while there, subscribe to our newsletter, click on the social media icons to follow us at World Footprints, and check out our low-cost cultural immersion discovery tour to Vietnam. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada. Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio, because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. This has been a presentation of World Footprints Media, all rights reserved.